This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. Inflation remains at the forefront of market thinking, especially as many central banks are now starting to sound like they want to take a break from fighting it just to see how previous tightening efforts play out. This week, we are very lucky to have Alberto Cavallo, co-founder of our research partner PriceStats and a professor at Harvard Business School, back with us to talk about the current message he sees in the unique price indices that he and the team at PriceStats produce, as well as some of the recent academic work he's presented at the ECB's annual Sintra conference this year. Listen, Alberto, it's great to have you back. Thankfully, this time, we are not careening around Paris in the back of a taxi like we did the last time we had you on Street Signals, but it's good to talk to you nonetheless. Great to talk to you, Tim. And I had a lot of fun that time we spoke on, on the taxi, so I'm, I'm hoping this one will be just as fun. Yes, and, and hopefully we will not get any traffic jams or have any near misses as we did in that particular taxi ride. Um, <laughs> But speaking of near misses or misses, you know, we've been thinking about inflation a lot over the last couple of years and particularly inflation missing on the upside. Now we're maybe starting to think if inflation might be missing on the downside to an increasing degree. But you, of course, have come to us and came to us years ago with an idea of how to measure inflation in a new and unique way. And the partnership that we formed that we call Price Stats. For those who haven't heard about it before, what is Price Stats? Very good. So Price Stats is something we started over 12 years ago in partnership uh, with State Street. And the objective was simple. We wanted to create inflation indicators and price indices that could give us signals about what was happening with pricing and with inflation all around the world. So it started 12 years ago. The idea is simple. We collect data online from uh, very large multi-channel retailers that post their prices on the web. And uh, every day we go in, we collect this information, and then we build inflation indices using essentially the same methodologies as uh, statistical agencies. We use the weights, for example, of the baskets as much as we can. And we create our own indices with this alternative series, which has the advantage, of course, that it's high frequency, that we can produce it on a daily basis and publish it with only a three-day lag. So it provides our clients with a very quick uh, measure of what large retailers are doing in terms of their pricing. We've taken it in using it for the strategy product as this kind of measure of demand-driven inflation. Actually, during the pandemic, we did a lot of work. You and I looked a lot at supply chain pressures and looking at things like stockouts and what that might do to future inflation. And that's actually the lead into what I hope is going to be the main topic of our conversation today, Alberto, is the, the notion of trend changes. This is something that I think you've been looking at now for about a year and particularly trying to gauge whether the trend in inflation following the pandemic, which as we all know, was was as I mentioned before, missing to the upside, whether that was starting to change. And I think it was important to reintroduce the concept of how we're actually measuring inflation because the work you've done is about looking for those trend breaks and doing so at a very micro level within the work that Price Stats does. Can you elaborate just on what that is and what I mean by that? Yes, of course. So one thing we've always known about our indices is that if you actually plot the price index itself next to the CPI, 
in, in all the countries we, we measure this in over 25 now. Uh, what we've always known is that the online index can detect these turning points in inflation trends sooner than what you would uh, end up seeing in the in the CPI. And there are various reasons for that. The, you know, online prices sometimes react sooner to the shocks. We can also collect, obviously, the data sooner. It doesn't have any filtering that can introduce lags. And our clients have traditionally used that information, just looked at the price index, in addition to the annual rates and monthly rates, to detect these changes in inflation trends, which in a way, you know, when, when you use it this way, you get a sense of a new, whether there's a new inflation regime uh, coming on um, and, and are we really uh, on a new trajectory of, of the price level. That's the, the idea. And uh, yeah. what I've done in the last year is detect these changes in trend on a more statistical basis. So you can actually take a price index, you can ask the data to reveal through very simple regression methods, when is the date when you can detect the biggest change in the slope of the price index, which is essentially the trend of the of the inflation. And um, we, uh, you can do that at the aggregate level. For example, you can take our price stats US index, run this uh, structural break analysis, and you would see a big change in June last year. If you know a little bit about inflation in the US, you would immediately realize, well, that has to do with energy because it's a big sector that had a big slowdown yeah. in June and that would be absolutely right. So what I've done in my research, and you can find you know, the details on my website on how this is actually constructed. What I've done is go deeper into the disaggregated data to build what I call the turning point indicator. And the idea here is simple. Instead of focusing on the aggregate index and detecting the trend breaks, I do this trend break analysis at the most disaggregated level for which we have weights in the CPI basket. So think, for example, at the level of cereals and things like that. I can plot the price index, detect the structural breaks, and then simply compute the share of CPI weights or the, the share of the basket of the CPI that we can monitor directly, we can measure how much of it has already experienced the slowdown, meaning a negative break in the trend over time. No? And that way, that gives us a sense of when is it that there are enough weights in the basket experiencing a slowdown and through truly a turning point in the inflation regime. No? So Alberto, the work you've done on this, going back, I think it was about a year ago, you first presented this concept of trend breaks at our research conferences in Boston and in London. I know earlier this year when we recorded in Paris, we were talking about the greater tendency for sectors in the US inflation basket to show trend breaks towards disinflation. I know you've just presented at our official institutions conference and the Boston research event this year, just last week. So I wanted to see if you could give us an update on that. Are we still on this tendency towards greater disinflation within the U.S. basket or is it starting to turn up again? Yeah. So, in fact, I first presented this work in October of uh, last year, of 2022. And it was an interesting time because if you remember at that point, annual inflation rates had already started uh, to fall. But when you use annual rates, you know, you have all these issues of base effects and uh, effects that have to do with price level jumps. So there wasn't a clear uh, feeling of whether we had really entered the new uh, trend of inflation. And my analysis, in fact, at that point showed that the U.S. had already in September of 22 experienced broad based 
turning points in headline inflation. But what we hadn't seen was a turning point in core at that point. Now, fast forward a few more months, and we actually, by November of that year of 2022, there was already a turning point in core inflation. And that disinflation trend continued. And, and you know, most of the uh, sectors that were still not turning uh, eventually uh, did. Now, what's been happening in the past six months is that these new trends are stabilizing. Uh, so if you look at our turning point indicator, it suggests that we're approaching a period of stability. It does not mean that we're going to necessarily see you know, a turning point on the way up or an, uh, start an inflationary period. It simply means that the trends have already broken in all these subsectors and they're stabilizing at their new level. So an obvious question that sometimes I get from clients there is, how does the level of these trends compare to what we had in the past? Yeah. And, yeah. and certainly relative to 2022, these are much better trajectories. Now, compared to pre-COVID rates, the aggregate level of the trend is still higher, significantly higher than what we had pre-COVID. So to be precise, the if you take the trend of the aggregate price index for the U.S., you get about 3.6% on an annualized basis for the headline index. And if you take a, an average of the trends that we see in the core, the level is about 3.2%. So this is significantly higher than what we had uh, pre-COVID. That's very interesting insofar as I think there's a lot of thinking in markets that we're stabilizing at levels that might actually be healthier than that, or that we can, can continue to see base effect driven disinflation bring us back, maybe not quite to target, but certainly enough that the Fed can be comfortable. The Fed, maybe other central banks as well. We'll talk about Europe, we'll talk about the UK. But are you suggesting that maybe that comfort zone, we're not really going to head there yet? Yeah, well, I'm actually optimistic, but two points on what you just said. First of yeah. all, the effects of base effects is actually going to be different for the next uh, six months. I, one of the things I showed in the conference is that if you take our index and assume that the current trend remained stable, what you would end up seeing on the annual rate is an increase in the annual inflation rate towards that level 3.6%. We're currently below that level. Now. But the base effects are actually going to make the annual rate increase in our index and quite likely if the trend continues also in the CPI. So a lot of people might get concerned if they just look at the annual rate. Even though the trend remains constant, that annual rate may, may increase. But the, I said I'm optimistic. And the reason I'm optimistic is when I look at disaggregated data, I can build indicators, for example, of what is the share of weights that have a current stable trends that are higher than pre-COVID. And that number over time has actually been improving. It is now about 70%. So 70% of subsectors have a trend that is higher than pre-COVID. But that number has improved over time. And particularly for core, that number is now at 60%. So it's, it's approaching a level that would suggest that about half of the, of the sectors have a similar trend than before COVID, and that would be good news. So bottom line, there are some upward pressures we see in the data right now, but most of them, in fact, if you look closely, are related to energy. So it's not surprising that many yeah. energy sectors, particularly, for example, in Europe, many of our indices are going up. That's more of a, an energy-driven effect that may not last. We don't know what will happen, but sure. uh, 
don't see uh, that pressure still affecting uh, the non-energy sectors. In fact, if you, even if you look at food, the disinflationary trend continues there. So overall, data suggests things continue to improve, perhaps slower than many would have wanted or expect, expected, yeah. but I am mostly optimistic about the direction we currently have right now. I have one more question on the U.S. It, it's to do with the breakdown of inflation between goods and services. And I think the Fed in particular is focused on services x housing inflation. As you explained at the beginning, price stats measures online goods prices. And so service sector prices are obviously a lot harder to measure in that context. And I know just as context for listeners, we, we do try and estimate service prices as plugs into the basket. With that in mind, can you say anything about the breakdown between goods and services? Is there any relative improvement in services that makes you even more optimistic about that normalization? Yeah, so like you said, our index is mostly goods. Um, but one of the patterns that if you look at inflation dynamics, it seems to be quite strong in during this crisis that goods have adjusted first, then prices and house incomes later. So pretty much everything we see playing out in goods, eventually we have seen playing out in services and housing as well. And I have no reason to think this time, you know, the next few months will be different of that front. In fact, a few services that we do have in our index that have to do, for example, with hotels, airlines, uh, some recreational services as well, all those have already shown significant disinflation. So my expectation would be that some of the patterns we can see with our index that is mostly goods will also play out with a, you know, some delay, but it will also play out in, in services and housing as well. Okay. I'm starting to feel a little bit better about the situation, in the U.S. at least. Now, Europe. This is one you mentioned where energy price effects are at play. And I spend a lot of time. I'm based in London. I look at the ECB as you know, a major part of my job, and their reaction to inflation has been far more aggressive hawkishness. It was a reaction actually we called very, very well using the work of price stats. This was last year, though. As we saw with the US, I think we started to see better evidence of disinflation in the Eurozone. But the summer here has been really interesting. You saw the biggest discounting that we've ever seen on a seasonal basis. And this was very, very seasonal, as European inflation numbers are. That made us a little bit more optimistic that we were getting towards a, a pause for the ECB. But then headline prices roared right back. And actually, if you take out the, the food and fuel components, they're also rising at a fairly aggressive clip once more. But could you offer any optimism in the work that you're doing around Europe more generally? Yes. So perhaps not optimism, but let me say a few things. Okay. Something first, not nicer than that. that yeah. No, no. <laughs> so first, the dynamics of inflation in Europe, I've always felt they were also lagged compared to the US. And, and that our data actually showed that in many ways in the work I was doing on the trend analysis, I kept on, you know, every time I updated the results, I kept on saying the only region where we don't see many breaks, except in a few countries, it, it was Europe. No? The good news for Europe on that front is that by... May, June of this year, all the countries that hadn't we hadn't seen any breaks finally had a turning point and a slowdown. So France, for example, was an example of that, one of the, the ones that seemed to be more delayed. So that, that was good news, let's say, at the beginning of the summer. My interpretation of why that was happening, well, it seemed that over time the inflation rates in Europe were starting to be driven more by idiosyncratic factors that apply to the country 
and not, you know, stories about the global pandemic effect. You started also seeing some divergence playing out and Germany had breaks earlier on, France did not. Um, you can also link the Ukraine war to some of the effects we were seeing in some countries. But by the beginning of the summer, most of the countries had had significant broad-based uh, slowdowns. Now, like, like you mentioned, the summer brought these increases in energy prices, fuel prices that had a quick impact on headline inflation rates. And you also mentioned uh, that it seems to be spreading across other sectors. And you, you're absolutely right. In fact, in June, I presented another work that I also mentioned and, and described in the research conference a couple of weeks ago with State Street. It's a paper we presented at the ECB Sintra Forum, which is kind of like the Jackson Hole of the ECB. The, the paper essentially made a very simple observation that tried to explain why there had been such high pass-through from cost and particularly energy shocks into prices. And the observation relied on the fact that if you use, you know, the most advanced models that macroeconomists have in terms of price setting behaviors, they do predict that the size of the shock matters a lot for the degree of pass-through because firms, when they're facing, you know, small shocks in normal low inflation times, they may delay making pricing decisions, even if they're costs are rising because they're sort of not too concerned about being, you know, and pricing different from their optimal levels. But when they get hit by a huge shock, and I, let me remind you, in January of 22, the Ukraine war introduced a shock to energy prices and costs in um, the Eurozone that was essentially 20%, um, something we had never seen before. Now, when firms see this shock, naturally they start making price changes more quickly and that leads to very quick pass-through from the cost changes into pricing and that's what we emphasized we showed uh using price stats data again how the frequency of price changes had dramatically increased they had gone from you know normally a product on the data we collect in europe would have had a, a change only twice a year suddenly during 2022 we were seeing a seven or eight and sometimes higher numbers in some countries. That flexibility increases pass-through. And I think that's the environment we are now in Europe. There's a lot of pass-through from these cost shocks. And that is a worrisome for the ECB. Now, there's another thing that we show in that paper that I think might be interesting to some listeners is the fact that the theory predicts an asymmetry on the pass-through on the way up than down. No? You may be thinking, okay, eventually fuel prices or energy, oil prices will come down. Uh, will we see prices collapse very, quick, collapse very quickly? And what the theory suggests, and we're yet to see this, but we, we will monitor it closely with, with our data, is that for many firms, when they see a cost decrease, the incentives to change very often are, are not that strong. No? It's always for them, for a firm, it's always better to be to have a price that is too high than a price that is too low. So if your price is too high, well, you can still wait because you'll be selling a few units at a price level that is actually quite good, giving you a significant markup over cost. You may be missing the opportunity to sell some other units, but that is not so costly as in the opposite direction. There's also this feeling among many firms that if inflation, the trend of inflation is positive, even if you're optimal price should be lower than what you currently have, eventually that raises the optimal price to the current level you have. 
So there's uh, also an incentive to wait. What this all boils down to is that uh, there's a lot of pass-through, there's, but it's much higher on the way up than on the way down. Even if we see these cost, uh, these uh, oil uh, prices come down, it will take longer for that to be reflected in many of the costs that firms are facing, and that introduces persistence into the inflation rate. It's really interesting, and it's great context because I'm about to actually write the preview piece for the September flash estimate of Eurozone inflation, and that context with the way energy prices are being passed through, and particularly the frequency you mentioned, I think is something very, very interesting because it does speak to this more volatile nature, I think, that we've seen in Eurozone prices. But of course, thankfully, underneath it, there is a little bit of optimism, and to, to shift focus a little bit, we had the ECB last week on that note, basically saying they are done. They acknowledge the, the supply side issues that have contributed to inflation. They acknowledge the energy issues, but they're now much more focused on growth. Now, we're going to publish this podcast just before the Bank of England meet on Thursday morning or Thursday midday, I guess, UK time. And the UK is another one of these economies where, like the Eurozone, you have discussion of stagflation in both economies. And I'm just wondering if you're thinking about the same things for the UK as what you just discussed for the Eurozone. Is it a similar story where it's basically energy and things are otherwise okay? Or is there something more pernicious for the UK? No, I'm actually more optimistic on the, ah, case of the UK because if we look at our our index, you can see clearly uh, this inflation playing out. It took longer. There were these price level effects that had affected annual rates and monthly rates. What I mean by that is that you know all these changes to the price caps of energy and household spending on energy, all those had introduced significant effects on the annual rates and increased them significantly. But uh, overall, if you focus on our data across the sectors, we do see significant disinflation. Now, even though the last monthly reading for the CPI was was high, the overall trend that we are finding in our data is it looks even better than the rest of uh, European countries. I actually think the UK is now on a better trajectory. Great to hear, not least given I wrote a piece yesterday suggesting this was the last rate hike simply because everything else was slowing down. So I'm glad to have an expert somewhat concur with me on that. The last economy, Alberto, that I wanted to get to was Japan. And, and I think it's kind of the same question. You know, we also have a Bank of Japan meeting later this week, well after the time this podcast goes out. I think every meeting now for the Bank of Japan is live, and yet many see them as well behind the curve in fighting inflation, despite the fact that they've had, of course, decades of disinflation and deflation. But Japan is another one of these economies where price stats continues to show relatively robust inflation. But I'm just wondering if, if the, this work on trend breaks says anything to you about that. Yeah, so in fact, there's a, if you look at our aggregate index, there's a very stable trend in Japan since the beginning of this year. And the annual rate is also already showing that stability. It's around 3%. Now, I think that's actually good news for Japan. Like you just mentioned, after decades of failing to, to get out of this depression type of, of stagnation type of environment uh, and trying to raise persistently the inflation rate, it has, has finally happened. No, of, of course, you can argue it happened because of the pandemic. Sure, but I, if, I don't think it's a good idea to, uh, for the Central Bank of Japan to try to be too aggressive 
on inflation. At this point, there's a stability in the annual inflation rate that is actually should be welcomed. It looks stable for now. Yeah. It has happened. It took longer to rise, but it looks that it's around between two and three percent. And I think that is a very comfortable level. It's probably exactly what they want to see. It probably justifies a little bit more action. It all makes, Alberto, I think, for a much better picture than I was anticipating. As always, it's great to catch up with you and great to hear about this stuff. Great. Thank you, team. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.